I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. Here we go. This is, as always, I say this every time, don't I? An incredible, incredible episode. My guest for today is J.D. Olette. And wait till you all hear what we talk about when we're talking about families' involvement in therapy. And it is an important episode. We have some hard conversations and they're real. That's why they need to be heard. All right, everyone, let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am so honored to have our guest on today, who is now doing her second recording because our recording failed. So I would like to welcome all of you to J.D. Olette. J.D., welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And as I said, during our little uh, tech snafus, I used to be a substitute teacher, so I, I can tap dance with the best of them. You, you are, you are such a trooper. And again, I want everyone to know that this is your second time doing this. So everybody can honor the work that you're putting into this message that is really, truly important. Like all kidding aside, we're talking about families and eating disorders. And so JD, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So my name's JD, um, and I live in San Diego, Southern California, native, born and bred. And um, I was in 2012, I was an educator um, and had three kids in college or grad school and had just one child left at home, our youngest daughter, Kinsey, who was a senior. And um She developed anorexia nervosa very suddenly, very sudden onset. We had no idea that she was uh, genetically vulnerable to this. We found out uh, in the course of this, my my mother-in-law had anorexia um, as a teenager, and we were so lucky, we are so lucky to live in San Diego and have had to have had access to really great evidence-based care sort of from from the get-go, from our from our hospital visit to our, you know, sort of pediatrician and GI figuring out what things were and then access to UC San Diego, which uses an FBT uh, approach. And so um, that was, um, you know, sort of the result of all of that luck, I think, was that we got really great psychoeducation, really great guidance very quickly. And um, there's no eating disorder journey that's easy and ours certainly wasn't. But in a relatively short time, um, we were able to get our daughter to wellness and independence. And um, I'm really passionate about sharing that path and, and making sure that families know that this 
journey doesn't have to take you down. It doesn't have to destroy you. And with the right information and acting quickly, um, you can um, you can turn it around. You can help your child and your family stay in suffering for a lot less time. And you can also begin to reap the rewards of these amazing people. Um, I always say people with eating disorders, I've met a lot of them over the last decade, are like the coolest people in the world. And so um, part of our journey, in fact, was sort of learning about that and learning about the temperamental traits and that sort of thing and, and helping her learn um, how to sort of take all of this that she was and um, use the light side of all of it and, and go on to live her life. And so we're just, we were so grateful for what we had that I, I really wanted to pay it forward. I want to point out something that is critical. And you said she went through this or as a family, you went through this in a relatively short period of time. You're also talking about, and I'm using the word success, which I don't usually use, but success in her recovery process JD, you and I were talking earlier, getting help right away is the critical piece. For myself, I started behaviors when I was 19 years old and I went down and I went down fast and my parents stepped in right away. I got treatment. Well, they didn't have treatment 35 years ago or 34 years ago, but I, this was addressed seriously from the beginning. And I swear that helped my recovery process, that helped my family system, and that got me to be fully recovered. And so I love that you pointed out that you got help right away. Parents, loved ones, supports, you need to know this. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to understand, again, we got a lot of psychoeducation at UC San Diego about neurobiology, you know, brain wiring, uh, neuroplasticity, all of these things. And so you want to act while your loved one's brain remembers what well is. And, you know, before you continue to the behaviors reinforce and reinforce. And I'll sometimes talk to people about sort of like, if you look at a surface and you drop a marble in it and there's a really deep groove, um, you know, it's always going to go into that groove. So we sort of have to make another groove before they're ready for it. And that's the recovery group. And we have to continue with that. And for me, I will say that we chose it before she was able to choose it. And I think it's really appropriate. And I think parents do that with a lot of other things. And I think the reason we're disempowered sometimes to do it with eating disorders has to do with society. It's first of all, a lot of old beliefs and myths and things like that. And then also, I think food is just like a food and exercise are like fraught in our society. So sometimes it bumps up against societal stuff, right? And then I think a lot of these kiddos are, um, or, you know, people in general are also very sort of smart and high achieving. Um, Dr. Jennifer Guadiani, I think has some amazing writing on this. Um, you know, it, it's kind of hard to believe that this smart, logical person, right, that you've very often, um, a lot of these kids haven't required sort of a lot of intensive parenting either. Um, everyone's, you know, sort of happily rowing the achievement boat, you know, down the together, right? Um, so you're not necessarily used to having to assert that much authority over your kid. And I, I also want to point out that our journey was, you know, sort of our, our treatment and oversight journey was from 17 to 20. So it did involve college years as, as yours did as well. And I, that's one of the reasons why I, I choose in my private practice work to really focus on families of young adults, um, 
and even some partners with how they use boundaries to um, get folks, to steer folks into, into recovery. One of the things that's so important about family-based treatment is that it's never about blaming the family system, but it also is not about having the one who's suffering as the identified patient, meaning families have their own unique cultures and rituals and ideas and media has gone into their face. So what happens is, is hopefully the, the one who's struggling with the eating disorder starts creating a ripple effect. And everyone in the family system starts noticing that change either needs to happen or just organically happens. It's hard to do it when the person is, is, is required to do the treatment on their own and no families are involved. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I wish I had pom-poms right now so I could be cheering you for that. And um, absolutely. And what I say is I don't believe families cause eating disorders. And I believe every single family has to change to fight one. And I think that when we approach this without judgment, without shame, and we just start and, you know, that's one of the tenets of, of FBT is being agnostic as to the cause. And that doesn't mean that we're not looking to change whatever needs to be changed. It's just that it's really hard to, to move forward when you're looking backwards. And so I think a lot of empathy with people. And I also think people are more likely to change when when they're not shamed. Um, and so and, and this I think what you said is so important, like if we take someone out of their environment and this is something that's like a thread through all my work with my private practice, with Equip, with UCSD, with the things I've created, right? is that if we take someone out of their environment, put them somewhere, address whatever has to and, and get you know some eating, some cessation of behaviors going on, right? But nothing in their environment has changed and folks don't know how to support them and everything else. Um, that makes it a lot harder. So if we go on this journey with our loved one, which is what FBT does, we can set up our home, our life, our cultural milieu to support health and recovery supporting behaviors. And I think... Um, I think it's a huge key and it's always interested, interesting to me that, you know, eating disorders are pretty well known to have not great outcomes. The, the stats are not good, right? And yet a lot of people seem sort of tied to sort of older ways of doing things. And I, I think sometimes I think that the, the more sort of problematic in terms of diet culture beliefs and things like that, that a home is, the more they need FBT and the more they need to be in there and change together. Because if you if you get well somewhere else and you come home to an environment that didn't change at all, it, it's pretty hard to sustain. Yeah. I also want to say it's about being attuned with your, I'm going to say child, it could be your loved one. It's about being attuned. And, and I, I think I either heard it in another podcast you were on, you recognized that and forgive me, I, I'm probably paraphrasing all of this. So your your daughter, quote unquote, went on like a little, let's go on a little diet. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to have you tell the story. But you noticed right away that your daughter was doing things that even though in cultural, like, oh yeah, all high school kids, seniors, they go on like a diet or blah, blah, blah. You notice that for your daughter, this was not the norm. And we have to pay attention and say, wait a minute, and not just throw everything under the carpet as like, oh, it's just a phase they're going through or whatnot. So can you speak a little to that? 
Yeah, and I want to share something that um, Dr. Megan Hellner, who I work with at Equipa, said she's a dietitian, and she, she has said that common and normal don't actually always mean right. And so I think that's very true. And, and for my daughter, um, the, you know, sort of the trigger that, that um, for her genetic, that whole genetic load to express as anorexia um, was she and her friends were done with their high school sports senior year, and they got together and decided they'd engage in a healthy eating makeover. And I'm using air quotes for healthy um, and that they didn't want to put on the freshman 15 air quotes again, you know, the following year. And so um, that was not an abnormal thing. And and I do have, I, I don't want to say I don't have, I don't have guilt. I, I actually think I kind of am missing a, a female guilt gene or something like that. Cause I, I don't really have that, but I do have like, huh, I would have made different choices about that. And I feel the same way about BMI testing in schools and a lot of other things that weren't really on my radar. Um, but yeah, it just, um, I, I think we did notice it earlier because we we were attuned to it. And I do really encourage people, if you weren't already a student of your child, now's the time to become one. Um, and I also think that if I had awareness about some things, we would have figured it out even sooner because she did have as a very strong symptom, anosognosia or lack of insight. And so she actually wasn't resisting going to doctors and things like that because she was confused about it as well. Mm. It's so, you know, and by the way, this is also, and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm showing my age, but this is what, what we miss now because families don't sit down for meals together anymore. And, you know, you, you notice things. If you sit down together at a meal every night, you'll suddenly notice your child's eating habits changing and you'll pick it up really quickly. And I'm not blaming society for being more progressive, but it is one of the sad things that I think has been lost. I sat down every night with my parents. I also want to point out that's why college was, was, a was for me, it was a playground for eating disorders because it was also the first time that I wasn't under sort of like watch. And, and you know what I'm saying? Like, I was like, oh, here, I can do whatever I want. So there's so many things that I want to talk about. And I do want to say on the eating door. So I was, um, it, we, we were a family that ate together every night. Um, and so I, I kind of my very first presentation I ever gave, which it's very interesting. I listened to June Alexander's interview and the very first Nita presentation I gave was because June asked me to fill in for her because she wasn't going to be able to come to the U.S. And I opened that with talking about how I actually sort of parented my kids, like a, a cafe press was hot at the time, like a, you know, 10 ways not to cause an eating disorder list. And um, and I think that was because I grew up with some disordered behavior around food and, and didn't want to re replicate that. Um, my mother is deceased. But in, but in hindsight, I think she might have had um, binge eating disorder, which was completely undiagnosed uh, because she was a thin woman. Um, but so I we did do a lot of those things. And I so I think, you know, it, it is helpful in that it'll help you see it. And also, I think if I could tell one thing to all parents, don't let your kid fall into negative energy balance. Just don't do it. It's not like who cares if everyone else is skipping breakfast in middle school? You know, again, common doesn't mean right. Who cares if nobody else makes their kids eat dinner at the table? Like do keep an eye, do keep those things. And, and food is, food is so much more than fuel. It is, it's love, you know, it's cultural relevance. It's all sorts of things. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that much to our just sort of overall sort of, um, 
just, just not great. Like, I think we're happier people when we, when we gather with food. Yeah. I'm, I'm imagining parents or, or loved ones are saying, oh gosh, I can't imagine taking my child out of school or, or postponing college. Walk us through how you did it and how you help families that are, that are facing this decision. Yeah. So for us, I have um, give a lot of credit to our intake coordinator at UC San Diego. And um, I will say that I showed up at that intake with my daughter. I, you know, I was convinced and I, I want to give my husband a lot of credit for, I actually think out of me, the pediatrician, the GI and my husband, I think my husband was the first one to say anorexia. Um, so I want to really give him that credit and still showed up to UCSD with, right, they're going to sign me up from some three night a week program for overachieving moms who caught it early, right? And it'll just be this blip in our lives. And um, in 30 minutes, I was convinced, uh, you know, first of all, they're like, we don't have a three night a week program. If we did, your daughter's too sick for it, right? And so I almost... I really couldn't tell you how I shifted as a person who has a master's degree in instructional leadership, sent four kids to college, all of that stuff, was a high school teacher. How did I shift to, yes, pulling my daughter out of her senior year of high school? It's the best parenting decision we we ever made. And what I really want to tell people about that decision is that that choice is the choice that enabled her to lose relatively little of her young adult and college years to this. And it's so hard, I think, for parents to step off sort of the, the checklist. And dependent, right, we're talking about a very specific cultural milieu that I live in, right? Um, when we say that, you know, sort of college is the next step. And, and this really has to do with any independence. And it's going to hit differently in different families. Um, but it wasn't the decision you would expect me to make. And it was the best decision ever. And so just really want to encourage parents to look at an eating disorder as the life-threatening illness that it is. And, you know, there's a lot of parallels where you can put yourself in, in terms of like, if you had a child who wasn't reliable with their diabetes management, with their, you know, with their insulin control and things like that, you might not send them 3000 miles away to college, right? You might like, we need to get this under control because one missed dose or one overdose, right? You could die from that. And the same is true for eating disorders. I'm glad you said that because it's also, and I, I say this often, but I want to make sure everybody is clear. We are talking about anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, OSFED, orthorexia. Like we are not Arfid. just talking, ARFED, ARFED, thank you. Oh my goodness. We are not just talking about one, one disorder that. they are all devastating. They are. Yeah, they are all devastating. And in some ways, you know, I think your daughter's story and my daughter's story sound very similar in terms of very drastic, hard to escape noticing presentation, which is one of those things that in hindsight, you look at as a gift. Wait, I could just, I just got a little, uh, I I hope everyone's hearing this. I don't have a daughter. (laughs) <laughs> no, I meant your story, oh, your story in terms of your own self being it. I was like, oh my God, do I have a daughter out there? No, no, but your own story being in college, being 19, having this drastic presentation, yeah. right? So yeah. your parents yeah. know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and and it's true. And it's, by the way, parents do not want to see their children suffer anymore, but you are, you are just 
you're you're suspending, you're actually prolonging. Like you said, you are prolonging all of the suffering and making it so it's that much more difficult for the recovery process. Because when you were talking about the neuroplasticity piece where you were saying, if there's a groove, that's the eating disorder. And then you need to make another brain groove, which is the healthy voice. The longer that brain groove in the eating disorder stays alive, I don't know why I'm using that word, the deeper the groove gets and the deeper and the deeper and the longer it's going to take for that to fill in and the healthy brain grooves to become the dominant voice in the head. That's why it's so critical to act right away. Yeah, it it is. And we would not give up early intervention pretty much in any other, in any other space, right? Like nobody waits, nobody says, ah, stage one cancer, why don't we wait and see to stage four? And, and so I think that, you know, eating disorders need to be treated with that same urgency. And I think what I really want parents to know is that in the moment, it feels like you're punishing or depriving your child and you're, you're not, it just feels awful. It's what you're doing instead is you're um, really trying to sort of suffocate the eating disorder and make that not be able to be present. And only then can your child or your partner, if, you know, and sometimes that's the case, sort of step into their healthy self and begin to live their life. And um, we talked a little bit more before about directness and I'm, I'm very, very direct and, um, you know, compassionate and kind. And, and I do want to meet people where they are and, and bring them forward with information. And ultimately, I have a responsibility, I think an ethical responsibility to share the truth of what I know. And that's the truth of what I've experienced, what I've experienced through education, what I've experienced through work, what I've experienced with other families. And I'm in the position now that um, I do a lot of work with parents of, of kids who are trying to keep them in college, Interestingly, a lot of colleges will support that, that kind of thing. And um, I am sadly able to share that I have five friends who, um, for various reasons, either didn't get the message about pulling their kid out of college or weren't able to do it for a variety of reasons. Um, And five friends who can prop their child's diploma from a really good college against their tombstone. And I have a responsibility to share that with people and to help them avoid that fate. It is very, it is, it is imperative, if that's the right word, to be as honest as possible. And I, myself, I remember when I was young in the field and I sat with Carolyn Costin and she would tell Pete, you know, tell parents like your child's going to die. And I'm thinking, Carolyn, don't say that. That's, that's very upsetting. And I recognized as an experienced therapist, and again, it is all said with compassion, but it has to be said, this is going to rob your child of everything. This is going to seep into the family system. It already has. This is going to, you cannot dance around how serious this can be. It is, you're right. It is our job to say, I, this, this could potentially, I mean, JD, you know, the statistics, below opioids, it's the second highest, it has the second highest mortality rate of any mental health illness. That is number two 
that's pretty serious. So yes, it is my job to say to the parent, I get it. I know how much you want to keep your child in school. I know how much, or you don't want to send them to treatment or we don't want this. I get it. And I want you to think about this a year from now, if your child has not survived because they had a heart attack, they had a stroke, they, whatever it is, because that's what we're looking at right now. Yeah, I think it's really can be very important to take parents through that sort of that exercise of, all right, if you do this path, let's follow it out to its possible conclusion. And can you live with what you're doing now, right? If if that's the conclusion that you come to. And I also think, you know, I really want to honor that what makes it so complicated, right? Generally, if your kid has cancer, they they maybe want some help and things like that. Um but with an eating disorder, it's almost like you're trying to help someone who's drowning. And so that they're like scratching and clawing at you in that panic thing and that sort of thing. So the eating disorder really wants you not to help them. Um, and one of the things that really helped me sort of get straight with what I was doing when we were in this period of really intense emotion dysregulation, which in FBT, you know, families really have to learn how to handle. And I think it's so important to go through this process with them. Um, you know, want to be clear that um, we we didn't have a walk in the park. Having a you know sort of backup psychiatric emergency response team plan was super important in our home because uh, my daughter is seven inches taller than I am, and her her anorexia did not like was not a fan of me, right? Um, but you know, sort of making sure that people know that if your child didn't feel that way, treat you that way, talk that way before. That's the eating disorder, doing everything it can to push everyone away, to alienate everyone. And so you you get to a place where I think you have to sort of absorb the eating disorder's vitriol and radiate back the love and affection for your child. And this is not an easy thing to do, right? It takes a lot of practice. It's I'm a huge fan of DBT skills, EFFT skills, sort of all of those things. And I think it's also possible. And then what I want families to know is that when you get to the other side of it, um, and again, always want to acknowledge that there are some people who may sort of have everything air quotes right and have done everything right and have not had a good outcome because eating disorders are just vicious, vicious beasts. So this is not to dishonor anyone's path, but to say that for a lot of people um, who do get in early intervention and do act aggressively and do do a lot of these things that we're talking about in terms of sort of life stops until we deal with this illness, at the other end of it, these are the most grateful people for what their families sacrificed, what they risked, right? All of that sort of stuff. And it's a very bittersweet journey with the bitter, very front loaded, and the sweet lasts forever. And so I think our family was, um, I sometimes joke that we were sort of confirmed to be a, a functional family by UCSD when we started. And um, and um, as functional as any family is, I always want to say that normal is the setting on a dryer, not a description of any person or family. Um, but we were, we were functional, we were close, we were tight knit and all of that. And through this journey, we became even more so. And um, our daughter, you know, very, very publicly to help other people. And in a way, I think this is, again, you're telling your experience as the, you know, sort of the child of parents who took some of these actions. And as my daughter is doing, and I'm telling it from the parents, I our voices combined to make sure that parents know that you do have gratitude, you do understand the sacrifice, and that your family just walks forward 
so much lighter and and just understanding of of the gifts you have for being a family that's very real and powerful and i it happens for i mean i will never say all about anything but for the families that i work with and have for the last decade that is what happens is people recognize that that was quite a sacrifice to drag your kid kicking screaming and clawing into recovery when they were unable to choose it for themselves and get them to a place where then they could begin to understand and choose and move forward independently. How do you help the families that do go through incredible emotional distress throughout this process? Because JD, this is not an easy process. My parents did not do family-based therapy because 30 odd years ago, I don't even think it was around, they did whatever they... But I put my family through hell. And I, I, was, I was very dysregulated very often. And, and I became the biggest figure in the family. Or let me, let me take that back. My eating disorder voice became the biggest figure in the family. How do you help parents when they're going through this process? Because it can also be incredibly difficult on family systems. It, it absolutely is. And I will tell you that I um, I think skills are the way. I think that there are a lot of really teachable skills that you can share with people. And so it, it's the skills training. Um, again, huge fan of dialectical behavioral therapy, huge fan of, of EFFT skills. And then also, I, I cannot be stated enough to have parents connect and have families connect with other families. And this is true of siblings as well. Because when we see the experience through the lens of, oh, these are normal things that happen with eating disorders. This isn't actually my child really hasn't changed. My child is in there being fully eclipsed by this eating disorder. And okay, 15 other people had, you know, spaghetti on the ceiling. Oh, okay. And then maybe um, somebody talks about how they used to have spaghetti on the ceiling and now they don't have any anymore. And then someone else talks about how their kid actually loves spaghetti now, right? Then you can begin to see that path forward and normalize the experience. I actually, I hope it's okay. I want to take a really hard turn. And, and, and I apologize. I'm sitting here and I'm, we're talking about like families and teens and adolescents and things like that. And I, I want to talk about what happens when your child, now I'm 52 years old and I'm still my mother's child, correct? So what happens when your child is above that, what we call this magical threshold of 18, because I did not grow up in a household that once I turned 18, I was the adult that my parents had no say. My parents had tremendous say. JD, what do you do? What do you do when the parent calls and says, my child's going to be 18 in five months? I we got because unfortunately, that I that is a horrible, from my perspective, a horrible depiction of a of a, an, an adult at 18 years old. Like I don't know anyway. I'm just now I'm going to go on my old personal rant, but so what do you do? What do you do? Oh gosh. Well, very on your wavelength. And I also like to say culturally, because I'm just a few years older than you. um, I actually think we were a lot older at 18 than 18 year olds are today. So I always say like 12 year olds are older than they used to be and 18 year olds are younger than they used to be. So I think we kind of need a whole sea change in how we think about this. And 
Um, usually what I will ask when parents will say, uh, you know, my kid is 18, my kid is 19, I can't do anything. I'll always say, how did such a young child become fully independently wealthy? And then they'll say, what are you talking about? And, um, you know, I will lean into um, sort of exactly what you're saying that for me, it, it really becomes about boundaries. And I, I work with partners sometimes as well. And I think it's the same thing. So if we accept that an 18 year old is an adult, right? Well, then I, as a 57 year old, I'm also an adult, right? And so we all get to have our boundaries. And so I, I think working with young adults, working with people over 18, I think it's really important to be clear on what we want. Very explicit. We want independence. And also be clear about what the stumbling block is. Our kids can't be independent from us until they're independent from the eating disorder. So we've got to tackle job one first. And that might mean that some of the normal adolescent, you know, I, I wouldn't normally, you know, I've, I've had four kids, not with anyone else that I say, you know, you have to do X, Y, and Z for us to continue to pay for your college. I didn't have to. They didn't have eating disorders. For my daughter, that was the hugest piece of leverage that we had for her. Very much of that temperament of wanting to succeed in school and very, being academic. And so we were able to say, your health comes first. And until this piece is in play, it's not possible to have to, to do, take on the next part of your journey. And I think when people can make that decision, it honestly, you spend so much less time. You know, there's there are times in life when we have to do hard things. And I, I always tell people, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I provided end of life care to my mother and sister who died of cancer at 61 and 41. So I am no stranger to hard things. So I get it. Fighting an eating disorder in your child is so far in a, in a life that has not been free of, of hard things, the hardest thing I've ever done. So I feel you. And also, um, and I'm going to use a, a term from another family mentor, Jamie Nimick, um, radical responsibility. This is your responsibility to your child as well. And I think once you go through it and talk to other parents who've gone through it, you begin to see the context for how this works. And again, I think the shared voices of lived experience of people with the eating disorder and their families, I think provides that holistic view of why we do this. And some um, young adults are the best, and my daughter included, right? And a lot of people I work with at Equip, our peer mentors, they have the strongest voices for take care of this now and give them back their life. Don't try half measures. Let me ask you a really provocative question. It's not that it's provocative, it's hard. And it's one that I get from parents. I am afraid. I am afraid if I say to my child, you cannot go back to school, that they will take their life. I'm afraid they will self-harm. And JD, that is a real fear. What do you say when parents come to you and say that? Yeah, you you're so right. And I want to I want to be clear that that sometimes that's um, that that is a real possibility. And sometimes it's eating disorder manipulation. Right. And we sort of have to to work and suss that out. So one of the very first things I do first is acquaint them with the Columbia suicidality protocol and all that sort of thing. So they can have that make sure people know when in doubt, err on the side of caution. Right. And also say to them, if that's what your child is saying, 
then that's an indication of how huge this problem is. And if you need a psych state to deal with suicidal ideation, that is preferable to giving into the eating disorder. So that continues to become that person's future and narrative. So I really will talk to parents about how you set up your world, right? Before you even say you're not going back to school, right? Let's make a plan for all these eventualities. And also let's do a reality check. I'm a huge fan of the DBT um, check the facts situation. And very often parents who will say this to me, like a huge one is I'm going to move out. I don't need your money. I'm going to move out. And, you know, parents are like, I can't say it because they're, they're going to move out. And then we do like, I run through the, the checklist. Do they have money? Can they, you know, and very often these kids are so ill, like your kid can't make a phone call. How are they going to go get a job, pay what, it, what is it now in this America six months rent, right? Like how let's, can they do those things? Right. And they probably can't. And so again, how are we going to walk through it and always honoring, I want to make it really clear that I feel so much for the young adults in this. I, and that was my daughter and I, you know, I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, sort of share a conversation that we had related to college monitoring very often. And so um, just so folks know, once things are really well, we had sort of a red, yellow, green contract and there was a, a certain weight she had to maintain. And I, part of our monitoring plan was I drove to 16 hours round trip once a month for two years to eat with her at school. And she did not always show up and go, yay, mom's here. It's the mom weekend, right? Um, and that's okay, right? Um, and also there were intervals during that where she would, you know, ask me to stop doing it. And I would often be standing there with tears streaming down my face saying, honey, I know that there's a chance that you're right about everything, that the eating disorder is gone and that this monitor is, is unnecessary and it's disempowering and it's hurting you. And I can feel like what my 18-year-old, 19-year-old self would have felt like. And I, I feel for you and I feel for me. And I also know what the literature says and what the statistics are. And we're going to keep doing this. And we just are. And that's that, um, you know, sort of validation an insistence piece. And I'm going to, I'm going to share if we have time for one, one last little anecdote sure, go for it. related to this. I think I told you, I want to, I want to get this in because I think it's pretty fun. And so my daughter just got married on 3-3-22, which was 10 years to the day after she admitted to UCSD on 3-3-12. And a parent, another parent uh, also told me, Hey, that stands for three meals and three snacks a day. So it feels we're all getting a kick out of it in our family. Right. And so she was over going through her, you know, how mom's always the holder of all the private papers and everything like that. So she was going through her, I have an envelope for each of my kids with all their stuff in it. And she was pulling out her stuff and, and she looked and she found the durable power of attorney. And she said, um, you know, Hey, do you think we could shred this now? And I said, Oh, I was thinking I would just give it to your new husband. And we had a laugh about that. And she said, have you all not figured out that I accepted a long time ago that there is no relapse possible with you behind me? And I said, yeah, I, I think I figured it out. So let's go ahead and shred it. Um, but that really is true. And my daughter will say and has said in public, right? Look, bottom line, if I relapse when I'm 50 and my mom is 80, she's got me because yeah. she's always got me. And that as a parent is the best thing you could ever hear. JD, it has been such an honor having you on the show. And I am sorry that we have to end, but I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming on the show. 
I am so glad to have been here and just it's just been such a wonderful conversation. All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next time. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.